0: Sound machine there, Dr. Beat, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by the fabulous Upper House MP here in Victoria, Fiona Patton. Welcome, Fiona, my first guest in two years. Oh my God, I
1: am so pleased to be your first, James. Well, your first in this studio today. It is just such a monumental time
0: for sex workers in Victoria. Of course, the sex work decriminalisation bill actually started, it kicked in the first tract on May 10. Tell us, first of all,
1: what, what it covers. Look, it, it covers a range of things. I think there's there's two really important parts of it. One is that sex workers are now protected against discrimination. Uh, so under our Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, there used to be an exemption in it to say you can't discriminate against anyone unless they're a sex worker. Now, unbelievable, and most people didn't know this, but it meant that sex workers could be refused a hotel room, could be refused a lease, could be refused any form of accommodation. So that's changed, and we've had that removed. But we've also said that you cannot discriminate against a person on the grounds of their trade, occupation, or calling. So this means that sex workers will be protected by law against discrimination, and this is a, a really big step to ending discrimination and changing the stigma around sex work. And the second part is that we fully de- well almost fully decriminalised street-based sex work. So now it is not an offence to be a street-based sex worker. There are a couple of disappointing provisions on that, and that would be unless you are a street-based sex worker working near a school or near a church during work hours. Uh, During business hours. But apart from that, um, street-based sex work has been fully decriminalised as of this week. So both terrific changes. I mean, it's huge.
0: I mean, the thing about the schools and the churches, that would be unusual. There wouldn't be many street-based sex workers
1: doing that anyway. To be honest, there's not a lot of street-based sex work. Um, People are finding other... Other um, tools and and ways of connecting with clients uh, so we're we're seeing a, a large number of, of sex workers will be using online services'll be using online applications and online platforms to do this so it's we're not talking about a huge number I mean I remember being on a on a commercial radio station where the the compare was worried that there would be street sex workers at the end of his driveway um, I don't know whether it was wishful thinking. He was somewhat hopeful, um, but there, and and also in in some of the other areas, there's lots of people assuming that this will mean that, you know every person will be out on the street soliciting for sex. Um, As it's turned out, that's not the case. And as we saw in New South Wales, where street sex work has been decriminalised since the the mid-80s. Do you think the government was getting on the front foot
0: with those clauses because they knew the Herald Sun and some commercial radio stations would go hysterical,
1: so they were trying to head it off at the pass? You know, politics is the art of compromise quite often. So I think this this, um, probably... It kept some of the, the more conservative members of the government's caucus um, at bay and they could kind of, um, they could accept these, these compromises. Now, it's not perfect, but it's certainly a lot better than what we had. And I think when we look at... Um, at particularly street-based sex work, there's there's some members of that community who are largely opportunistic. So taking away any of the barriers from those people being able to seek help, um, being able to report a crime is, is a great thing. And look, I, I doubt that there would be any appetite for the police really to be prosecuting sex workers, street-based sex workers anyway. It would be more that they would move them on or... Um, connect them up with some health services. You mentioned anti-discrimination. Of course, the anti-discrimination provisions of the legislation, they're a world first, I believe. We've had something similar in the ACT, but you're absolutely right. Um, The the, the ones in Victoria will be stronger. And it really is, um, it is something that, our our colleagues in other jurisdictions around the world look on with envy that we would have a government that would say no it's not okay to discriminate against someone for being a sex worker so yes it is it's 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 really progressive it's very forward and it helps us start start this change to the stigma that sex workers experience And decriminalization does that as well. Because for many people, the fact that a, a, a large part of sex work was illegal. that added to the stigma that this was something that people were doing that was illegal, that meant that that must be immoral or it must be wrong or it must be dangerous and and now we're going to see a change in that and we're seeing now that independent sex workers can can work without having to register without having to worry that they are somehow breaking the law or worry about losing their lease or being kicked out of, you know, whatever accommodation that they were in. Yeah, the licensing
0: system was an absolute nightmare and mm. caused a lot of stress for people, you know, being on that kind of public record. Now, has that database been
1: deleted yet? I know Victoria Police were going to delete it. Has that happened? Yes, yeah, so it works within it's, – it's within the consumer Department of Consumer Affairs. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a public list, but it was a list that, you know, a fairly large number of people could access. So, yes, that has been – that has now been deleted. And, you know, it was a, there was never any real logic to keeping a list of, for sex workers to have to register. And it was kind of, it was, it was quite quaint. You would have to register as an exempt brothel license. So you had to register because you weren't a brothel because you were an independent sex worker. So it it didn't make a lot of it. It didn't make a lot of sense even from the beginning, and it really was concerning. And and frankly, most people uh, didn't go through that registration process. And yeah, we heard of an awful story where a woman from um, a fairly conservative ethnic background had filled in the had registered and had a had a letter sent to her mother um, now that that fortunately she she found it before her parents found it, but that could have put her into all sorts of problems with her family It would have been devastating for her so it was those types of things that I mean, apart from the fact that there was no argument for why it was necessary, it was those types of harms that that were occurring from it as well. And what a relief to have the stigma, you know, know. commence to be removed. Exactly. It's not going to happen overnight. But we are going to treat sex workers as workers and as just that, and that they will have the same rights, the same rights and responsibilities as all other workers, and what what I think is quite exciting and and probably somewhat unique to Victoria is work cover is largely going to be the lead agency here as as we As we further decriminalise as we further move into the different tranches of the legislation, this will really just be about um, work health and safety. Tell us about local government, what's their role in this new legislation? Well, look that is still, to be honest, that it actually is still being worked out. So through the decriminalisation, through the repeal of the sex work act, this um this also impacts all of the planning acts that regulated where brothel business could brothel businesses could could establish or escort businesses could be could be situated. so that that's all gone, or will all go and now it will be looking at how we do provide the the proper planning provisions now the argument is and what we've seen in other jurisdictions is that you just treat these businesses like any other business and they have development applications and you consider the plant you consider the parking you consider the signage you consider all of the things that you would consider whether it was a hairdresser or you know or a computer shop so the the same sorts of things and and that 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 certainly has got some of our local councils concerned. Some of our local councillors, I think, have got, you know, really overworked imaginations about what this <laughs> is all going to mean. They seem to imagine that every second shop will have, you know, sort of an Amsterdam style window with with men and women's you know and people sitting in windows soliciting on the street and they 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 seem to imagine that um that that they they didn't have sex work in their community and now they will um What we've we've had to sort of break the news to them is that there's always been sex workers in their community, and there will continue to be sex workers in their community, and you probably will be none the wiser as you are now. Um, So there's there's a little bit of fear out there, and I think a little bit of troublemaking as well. But hopefully, what we need now from the government and what we need to be doing is is setting a good timeline for. Uh, for everyone so that we can see the different regulations, when they'll come in and and how we're going to, I guess, negotiate those and communicate those. But from all our experience and from looking overseas, when we looked in New Zealand and and New South Wales, that are two models of decriminalisation that have been around for over 20 years, you can see that the industry didn't expand. Um, It didn't decline. It kind of stayed the same. Nothing really changed, and the complaints around sex sex work businesses is very low um, in the jurisdictions where um, sex work has been decriminalised. Do you
0: anticipate the Liberal Party will be using that uncertainty around planning and perhaps that hysteria to kind of um, stir up a bit of trouble before the state election in November?
1: Look, it does concern me, James, and I and I think. Um, it's it's really made me think hard about getting trying to get re-elected because it is unfinished business, and we do need to make sure that we stay on track next year because we there's a lot of important work to be done um, around establishing proper decriminalisation of sex work and ensuring that the the objectives of that legislation and the object objectives that we set out in to decriminalise are fully realized and that that a lot of that won't happen until you know December 2023 so yeah i i think we need to be very very cautious that people don't use this as an election issue and we need to be very alive to 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 keeping everyone to their word and to ensuring that what was committed to this year actually Um, it takes place next year. So what exactly will kick in in December 2023? Well, that's when the licensing scheme will end for brothels. So at the moment, we have an extraordinarily strict licensing scheme for brothels that, you know, effectively, you'd you'd have to find a premises and rent it for about two years before you could open the business. So very much limits who who could run a business like that. That's crazy. It limits the number of people that you can have working there. It limits; um, it's it, it's it's extremely limiting, and it's not it's not in line with community attitudes, and it's not in line with good health and safety practices. So it sounds um, like it was set up
0: so brothels wouldn't open. It was a deterrent. Well,
1: let's you know when we think back. So in the nineteen eighties, when Victoria legalised sex work, or it was prostitu- It was called prostitution. It was called the Prostitution Control Act. And that was what it was about. It was actually about controlling it, which was quite radical back in the 80s. Because in the 80s, everybody just wanted to push it under the carpet, just turn a blind eye. And Victoria was the only state in the world that said, you know what, we need to regulate this industry. We can't just pretend it's not there. And they they went to regulate it, but yes, it was called this Control Act. And then in the nineties, when Jan Wade was the Attorney General, she really, you know, it was sort of like if I can't prohibit it, I'm going to regulate it out of existence. And you know, she limited so, you know, if you own a brothel, you can only own one. Um, and you just think if you're if you actually are a good operator, why wouldn't you want that operator to be able to? Um, expand if they if they so chose. Also for for collective brothels, so we're starting to see um, a much more of a collective form of brothel in New Zealand, where groups just work together um, collectively in running a place. Uh, that there's no way that was possible under our existing legislation. So next year, a lot of those types of models will become a lot more possible. So we'll start to see. We won't see great. I don't think we'll see greater numbers, but we'll start to see greater diversity in the industry, and that can only be a good thing. You are the leader of the Reason Party. We're Mm.
0: almost at the end of a federal election campaign. Yes. Uh, Let's start with the trans community. You're a huge Uh, supporter of the community. What's your response to the Prime Minister's fearmongering and and demonisation of trans people?
1: I am absolutely appalled and horrified and disgusted by this to use um to use our our trans brothers and sisters our trans family in such a politically motivated way is it, it is unbelievable and this man calls himself a christian and it is despicable and in fact most of the people who are saying the most despicable things in this election around our trans community are the so-called christians and I find this absolutely abhorrent. Um, we we have a wonderful trans candidate uh, running, Hannah Meyer running um, running with us in uh, in New South Wales, along with Jane Carrow. Jane Carroll is the lead. Jane's the lead candidate, and Hannah is backing her. And Hannah is doing a most amazing job. We are just so lucky to to have them um, running 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 for us i i i can't i you know, I think it's reasons to vote them out i mean there are there are many other reasons I can assure you, but this was just so disgustingly politically motivated and trying to capture the vote of the Christian lobby and trying to capture their donations, et cetera. Jane Caro is also a huge supporter of
0: the trans community. Tell us the mm. backstory to how Jan, or, or Jane, I should
1: say, became a Reason Party candidate. I asked her. That's <laughs> That was it. I, I asked Jane that on an interview and she said, you asked me. Um, Jane obviously has been a massive campaigner for women's rights, uh, for public education, for public health, for the community, for the climate. She's just been a brilliant spokesperson out there and such a reasonable, sensible person, a real voice of reason. So we we did approach her about this and she had been considering it. And I sort of knew and I'd seen on some of her social media that she had been considering running because – as she was saying, you know, you can scream from the sidelines for so long. Do you some at one at some time do you just have to put your hand up and try and step in? And she was getting to that point, so um, and she has. And I think I mean, she would be so wonderful in the Senate. Having a voice like Jane Carrow in the Senate would be um, just brilliant, and you know. The, the election is so important because if we don't get voices like Jane Caro or our Victorian candidate Yolanda Vega, another brilliant woman who has been an advocate of women's rights, um, family violence for, for decades, but if we don't get those voices in there, we're going to get vo- we're going to get more Pauline Hanson's. We're going to get more Clive Palmers. We're going to see those types of voices in there. You know, Sophie Mirabella's husband. You know, those are the types of people that we need to ensure do not get elected in this in this um, federal election because even if we have a sea of teal in the in the lower house in the house of representatives you need a strong senate otherwise nothing gets passed and you know i probably know that better than anyone having sat on the cross bench in in the upper house in victoria where we you know have passed a you know Quite a lot of um, good legislation. So, if you did get some candidates elected to the Senate,
0: what would Mm. be the the priority policy areas for the Reason Party?
1: Look, I I think at at a federal level, um, a greater separation of church and state. So, we'd like to see a really clear, distinct. uh, separation. And and that's not clear now. We still have federally funded chaplaincy programs. Uh, we still provide large tax benefits to religious businesses, not religious charities, religious businesses. So I, I think that's something that we need to address. I know that Jane is absolutely passionate about um, public education and really addressing that. And again, this kind of goes back to that secularism where we're seeing religious schools getting an you know, double, if not more, the amount of money that we're giving to our public schools. So that needs to change. and I know she will be passionate about that. supporting um, supporting a raft of changes around climate emergency. Uh, I think you know we would be working with other parties on a whole range of those things and 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 integrity and transparency and you know a voice of reason in there but all of those we've you know we've been working down here on um, limits to election spending which has the has the very positive um outcome of limiting donations um, and limiting the effect of donations can have. So we'd be working towards doing some of that kind of electoral reform as well. So there's a big to-do list up there Um, and, of course, you know, equality.
0: What about banking reform? You've been a big critic of how the banks operate, especially towards the sex work community. Mm. Will you be uh, advocating some banking Look, reforms?
1: Isn't that interesting, James? And and if we if the Federal Discrimination Act had a clause in it like we have just. As, as we have just put into our state legislation, to protect people from discrimination on the grounds of their occupation, trade or calling. That would put an end to the um, the appalling discrimination that banks um, push out on, on on sex workers and sex-related businesses. So I think, you know, I don't want a religious freedom, I mean, the Religious Freedom Bill, which is just the right for religious people, to be assholes or discriminate against others, but I do think that we could set up some really strong vilification and discrimination legislation at a federal level that would protect us from you know from banks wanting to discriminate on the grounds of morality or on the grounds of their own personal opinions, um, and that would be a very strong that would that that actually would be a very strong way of also. Um, Furthering, I think, this separation of church and state. What about an anti-corruption
0: commission? I mean, we've seen so much pork barrelling, blatantly so. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: uh, is that corruption? And uh, would you be pushing for some policies in that regard?
1: Look, I, you know, I think Helen Haynes was, you know, her piece of legislation on uh, on the, on an IBAC or an ICAC is excellent, and I think we would, you know, there's no point reinventing the wheel. What Helen Haynes did was very good and is really worth supporting, and I've, and I'm certain that if she's reelected she will be she will be reintroducing that piece of legislation and i have no, and we would be fully supportive of it you know and i think the our victorian eye back there's areas that we could improve on that and i'd certainly you know in, next year if if i'm still around i'd certainly think that we need to, there's things that we can do to improve our our anti-corruption um uh legislation down here but the federal, the federal ICAC is urgent, and you are right. There is blatant pork barrelling. There is blatant, um, and it's it happens on both sides. To be honest, I mean, you know, when big parties get into power, they want to keep the power, and and they use the ta- they use taxpayer money to um, maintain that power. We see it in the state level. We know that if you are in a safe seat, like you look up in Broadmeadows. Um, and see the neglect of Faulkner High School, of the Broadmeadows train station. It's a safe seat. They don't spend any money there. And then you look at more marginal seats, and I'd put Northgate in there, for example, where um, the Labor's trying to hold off from the Greens there. Uh, You see a lot of money going into the local schools in that area. So we see this at every level of government, um, and it has to stop.
0: One week to go, uh, there's already kind of a bit of hysteria and national security drum beating. You know, Peter Dutton's been talking about the Chinese spy ship, you know, seen off the coast of WA. Are you worried about dirty tricks in the final week of
1: the campaign? Oh, I've got no doubt there'll be dirty tricks. I mean, and, and you know, I'd, I'd say there's some fe- there's there's a sense of desperation um, and that may be on both sides. You know, what wouldn't it be lovely if we heard Dutton talking about more overseas aid? More foreign aid wouldn't it be great if we wanted to look about you know look around securing the safety of, of of you know the safety of our region actually putting spending into foreign aid instead of you know spending billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars on su- on submarines that who knows whether we will ever see them um, or whether they will be the technology that we need in the decades in the future when they 're supposedly going to come um, yes we will see Nasty tricks. We know that most of the campaigning is negative. Uh, Most of the advertising that we see on social media from both parties is all negative. And sadly, for all of us, this this is this impacts everyone. So I want to see greater trust in our governments. I want to see people trust their politicians, trust that we're doing the right thing, trust that we are acting responsibly and reasonably and sensibly and transparently, and when. The major parties are yelling at each other, saying, "No, they're liars! No, they're liars! No, they're cheats! No, they're hopeless! They're this." The community just thinks, "Well, you're all a bunch of losers," and um, you know it doesn't. And we lose faith in in our governments. And I, I, I you know, i find it a great privilege being a member of parliament and i you know and I, I think it and i think it can do really good work and i and i know a lot of my colleagues from both sides of the house are, are good people who want to do good things but you would never know that during an election campaign yeah and the patton thank you so much for joining me on 3cr today thanks
0: james you are an in your face on 3cr with james and here is lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Great.
2: helen razor but that's deeply irrelevant what is relevant is that
1: you're listening to 3cr on what's that frequency again dear 855 i told you helen 855 and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap so well done
3: Rock, y'all. So let's rock, y'all. Y'all. The body rock, so rock stop, To the The body rock, yo so lay rock, stop, To the The body rock, rock,
0: There, body rock, you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. Joined in the studio by Patrick Liversy, who's play Dirt is a happening thing
2: real soon at Chapel Off Chapel. Welcome, Patrick. Ah, oh, Thank you for having me. Tell us what Dirt's all about. Dirt is a political thriller set in Moscow in 2019. An Australian travels to Russia and hooks up with a local tour guide, and over the course of one night, they they party, they see the sights, they go out, um, but things take a dark turn when neither turn out to be who they initially said they were. Sounds thrilling It is thrilling And you can't say too much Because you obviously you don't want to give away the twists and turns But it's set against um, queer persecution across the Russian Federation That's where the idea came from
0: So the timing is pretty exquisite Of course uh, we're seeing a huge crackdown in Russia of civil liberties generally Yeah, But just in April we saw the organisation that was basically um, running If you like the, 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 the incorporated side of the Russian LGBT network was shut down, yeah. as indeed uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty in Russia were.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's shocking and it's it's scary. I mean, we've had so many discussions as a team about what's going on in the world right now because we've been working on this since the beginning of 2020. And in many ways, it just goes to show that you can see these things happening from a mile away. You know, the the war seemed to come out of nowhere, but then you look at what had been happening in the years in the decade leading up to it. And, you know, it's all there. So tell us
0: how how your production actually supports activists in, in Russia.
2: Well, a dollar from every ticket sold is donated, was donated to the Russian LGBT network no longer. Um, but a dollar from every ticket sold is donated to the Moscow Community Centre for LGBT Plus Initiatives, um, which is a grassroots organisation in Moscow, which helps people... Uh, to flee the country if they need to, or just to get out of bad living situations. And also we donate money to Insight Ukraine, which is a, a trans-focused organisation in Ukraine, uh, helping yeah, trans and non-binary folks. So you star
0: in Dirt mm. at Chapel of Chapel with your real-life partner, the yes. real king. Yeah. What's that
2: like? Uh, it's so much fun. It's obviously got its ups and downs. Um, We've because we've been through the pandemic together and now we've created a show together and we've toured it around the country together. So it's a lot of time living on top of each other. Uh, So it makes for some very funny arguments sometimes. But I think our relationship on stage is uh, quite special and a lot of um, it's been... Uh, you know, noted by quite a few reviewers and audience members that it's part of the exciting part of watching this show is our relationship on stage because we both come from a place in our acting where we try to keep it very much alive and present every night. So things don't always often don't happen the same time twice, same, um, same way twice. Uh, so it makes for a lot of spontaneity and a lot of excitement. Yeah.
0: So it's the intensity of being together during lockdown that must really kind of transpose to the stage.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we had one argument, which is so silly and so petty, because, you know, you just, it just happens when you're in a relationship. It was about an hour before we go on stage, and we were in our Airbnb. We're in Adelaide. We've been doing the show for six weeks, and we just started saying, well, I hate it when you do this in the show, and I hate it when you do that in the show. And then we stopped and we said, all right, I'm really sorry. I love you. Let's go do the show. <laughs> wow. So that that really does make it, you know, very spontaneous. It does. But our communication, we just know that at the end of the day, you have to put it all away and you have to be looking after each other on the stage. You know, we always have a moment before the show where we, you know, connect with each other. We say, yep, I've got you. Whatever you're going to do, I'm going to receive it. Um, We have a conversation about intimacy, what we're comfortable with that night. You know, because sometimes you just don't feel like getting touched. And so that's okay. We don't always have to kiss um, in the show. That That can move around. So it's just about communication and being honest with each other. And I think because we're in a relationship, we can be that little bit more honest and vulnerable with each other, which just makes for an even better performance. Because not only have you got performers on stage that are really going at each other, but they're also looking after each other. So, is it better performing a play with a partner, a real-life partner? I don't know. That's a great question. I think it's definitely we can go to more places. And there's I think not necessarily – maybe it's not Will being my partner, but Will just being, you know, one of the closest people in my life – there's just so much trust there and there's so much instinct there of what the other person, um, the way they move and what they do. And so I think we just play off each other really beautifully. And I think that's the main thing is just that trust and vulnerability. So in dirt, who plays the Australian and who plays the Russian? So Will is the Australian and I play the Russian. Oh, wow. You've got the really interesting part. I do. Yes. It's taken, yeah, a lot of research, a lot of, um, we spoke to a number of people that um, from Australia from Russia from Ukraine as in living in Australia from Russia and Ukraine um, who had left for a bunch of reasons but many of them had left because of their sexuality they just couldn't make it work with their living situation and so we interviewed them um, and I interviewed them specifically about you know what's uh, what is it to be Russian you know what what's that what's that character that I'm looking for and so you know it 's been it 's been a wild ride, but I, I love the character so much and i i enjoy, I enjoy doing it every night yeah. so what did people tell you about gay Russians Well, these people basically confirmed everything we were thinking because that 's the thing when you 're telling a story about something so foreign to you, you want to make sure that you understand it because on the one hand, it being a queer story we understood we, we can relate to that to a certain extent you know we 've all suffered because of that um, but this is on such a magnitude that we can't even imagine so doing those interviews it was like well are we right to think that this is what it was like and a lot of them are saying yeah yeah that's exactly what it was like you know one of um a good friend of mine who uh, fled russia um well she she left russia but she had a story about the week le- leading up to her leaving she was terrified that someone was going to stop her You know, she kept saying to her partner at the time, you know, have you got your passport? Have you got the passports? Have you got the, like, just wanted to make sure that everything was on their person because she just had so much anxiety and paranoia, paranoia about what what might happen. And I think that really informed the writing of the play. So, Angus Cameron... Will and I commissioned Angus to write the play and we really wanted that feeling of paranoia to be there the entire time. So you're not quite sure what's going on because I think that's, that's the reality for a lot of people. And so we wanted the audience to be sitting in that, I don't know what's real. I don't know what I'm making up because I'm scared. I don't know what I'm reading in these people. I think that is true to life and also makes for a really exciting night at the theatre.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about reality, but also truth. It yeah. sounds like Dirt explores some interesting questions about truth.
2: Definitely, that's at the heart of it. Is we wanted to, um, we wanted to talk about authenticity and um, you know what what is what is that objective truth? How can we ever get to that objective truth of existence? And in telling this story, as people positioned in Australia. We wanted to make sure that we were telling it from a perspective that was relevant and useful to an Australian audience. And so you've got that outsider going into this foreign place, making a lot of assumptions, um, and the story kind of follows as each of those assumptions unfolds and each of those decisions kind of leads to something else. Speaking of decisions, how did you and Will decide who would play what character? I can't remember how we decided. I think we had the plan for the two characters and we were talking about it. And then I think Will really wanted to play an Australian character that was different because they hadn't played many. They'd done a a couple of kind of like more intense character things in the lead up to that. So, like, no, I really want to play... Just, you know, play with my accent for once Whereas I was on the journey of playing lots of different characters But I wanted to keep doing that So I think it kind of just, that's how it fell We both just gravitated towards a character You're heading off to New York in the future What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I'm leaving in December I'm going to study in New York for 18 months Which is unbelievable I found out just only the other week that I'm going so, yeah, it's put this year into perspective, really. There's a few productions to get through. We're doing Dirt here, obviously, but also Dirt in Darwin as well. And then we're doing another play, um, Cavemen, uh, which is the same creative team behind Dirt. We're doing that in November. And then I'll be gone.
0: And and Will's doing Cavemen as well. Yeah. Wow. so Yeah.
2: So, Will, it's our second play that we're producing together. Um, Angus Cameron wrote it. Um, our director, Bronwyn, she's directing it again. And then Chen Wang is coming on board. He's a Green Room Award-winning actor. Um, and then we've got another very, very exciting actor that we can't announce just yet, but uh, we will be in the coming weeks. Give us those performance details for Dirt at Chapel of Chapel. So Dirt opens on the 26th of May. We've got previews on the 24th and the 25th um, at Chapel of Chapel in The Loft. It's at 8 p.m. every night. Uh, you can buy tickets online or at the theatre.
0: Patrick Livesey, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's been great chatting. Thank you for having me, James.
2: 3CR! In Your Face would like to
0: thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect to find out more search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook